Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The brood is over. Don't pop that zit. It could be a rage baby. They come from the unknown, and they're here now, hiding, waiting to strike. You can feel their presence all around you. Never before have you come this close to the edge of terror. Never before have you faced anything so strange and sinister, so bizarre and unnerving. Never until now. David Cronenberg's The Brood. Are you ready for me, Frank? I seem to be a very special person now. I'm in the middle of a strange adventure. I want to go with you wherever you go. Do you? Uh, can we talk about the brood? That's what we're here for. Uh, so we're back to horror. What yeah, a relief. No, no fast cars in this one. Huge relief that we're not doing that again. Uh, but you could say there's fast company because these kids, they move around pretty they're quickly. Speedy. They're speedy. Yeah, I don't know they're how they're speedy. getting around like they are. They're incredible. They're incredible. I don't know why everybody's so mad at them all the time. They seem incredibly useful. Like they just as a utilitarian com- complex or, or concept, I think that that they're deeply undersold in this film. All the <laughs> trying to kill them. Uh, so this they just uh, don't understand them. That's right. They didn't, and that's a whole movie is about psychoanalysis. Like they should have worked harder to understand the rage babies instead of thinking just working so hard on marriage, <laughs> snooze, marriage, and. What? Throat cancer <laughs> and throat can't weird. Oh, so weird. Talk to me about this movie. Uh, how did it hit you? You'd seen it before, and I had. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what what'd you make of it this time around? This was an interesting one too. I, I, it's I I feel like my brain kind of uh, told me you know you'd seen this movie, but just keep it blocked out of your mind. Like I I really couldn't remember much of anything. I remembered there were these like mutant kids and an attic. And that was like really all I remembered about this movie. And so it was really, I felt pretty fresh coming into it because I couldn't quite remember what was happening. Um, it's, it's a really interesting film that I think at this point, uh, you know, I think it's fair. I, I think, well, it's not just fair to say. I think it's uh, it's factual to say that Cronenberg is entering his Criterion years, the years uh, of his films that Criterion has deemed, uh, you know, important enough to release in their uh, in their pantheon of important films. That's going to be the next. Uh, I think the next four films are all released through through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's. It's an interesting experiment that Cronenberg's doing here that I think, you know, it's 
part of it is a way to kind of get through his own personal demons of his divorce and uh, custody battle over over uh, his child with his ex-wife. And, uh, you know, I think as a horror writer and filmmaker, it feels like a natural way to kind of tell a horror story when you when you look at it that way. So was this about the custody over the one child he wanted to keep and the other 12 that he wasn't as interested in? Did that <laughs> No? Too dark? Uh, it, I think it's fascinating uh, as an example of, of using art and using cinema as a catharsis for the filmmaker, right? To, to really explore their own, um, their own experience of an event. And I, I, one of the interesting things that came up in the, in the reading was his uh, experience of Kramer versus Kramer that he thought was too optimistic. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a film that came out at the same time. And, uh, and this was as much a, a, a film you know, the brood is as much a film that's a response to his own experience as those that that attempt to make uh, the divorce and custody battle experience too soft in in his view at the time. And I think that's a really interesting way to approach it. I didn't know any of that going into this movie. And um, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed it. Is that so weird? I uh, I felt like the the uh, just the way he uh, a- approached these characters, the way I think the characters, the the actors were at, uh, did a phenomenal job delivering what you know could have been a completely wackadoo concept and and conceit on screen, and I think they they really pulled it off. I was I was in it. It was um, a, a super slow burn for me. That by the time the surprises started to come, and I, I I was I was into it, and and I I find that deeply jarring. That uh, I'm not only am I not. Um, shunning horror anymore i'm actually looking forward to it like this was this was a really fun experience for me it is nice to see an artist who really isn't afraid of of taking his own personal issues and just kind of putting them out there because that can be a hard element obviously that's something that it, it has been a line within art uh for you know forever it's just it's a nature of art is using it as a form of expressing expressing things that you're dealing with and uh, i i like that it's happening here i i and i think it's done in a way where it's not just like an overt like this is my wife and this is my child and this is how i feel about her and this is why i hate her so much and this is why i'm the one who should be getting the child it's not like that it's it's just putting that into a different context and creating this this story around it which was really interesting there there were elements that i think were stronger than others but I still found it to be overall a pretty interesting film. I, I, I let can we can we start with mental illness uh, because so much of this film anchors on Cronenberg's um, approach to the the um, what's it called in the film the psycho uh, the the technique that the doctor is you just said it a minute ago right before I push record psychoplasmics psychoplasmics right it's a uh, it, it's sort of this neo-cultist approach to whatever is going on in this doctor's hidden you know mountain estate um and you know how they handle the uh, act of psychoanalysis it's n- not cognitive behavioral therapy as we, as we know it uh and and i i think it starts in the very beginning sort of planting the seeds to some strangeness that 
is going to go on in this movie as we look at it as he's talking to Mike uh, on a stage. They're having what you think could be a staged reading of a one-act play. It turns out it's it's uh, analysis in the round. Uh, as he, it's, it's confrontational analysis in the round. There's an audience watching him uh, confront, uh, aggressively confront a patient. And that patient goes through some physical transformations, too. Um, so from there, we get this exploration in the film of how, you know, I, through Cronenberg's approach, at least, he views, um, you know, w- how we handle these sorts of illnesses of the mind. What did you think of of his exploration here? I, that's an aspect of it that I think there are some interesting elements to it that work and some that don't. Um, it's, I like the way that we're, that this interesting, uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, I'm not, you know, psychotherapist, hypnotherapist. I don't know what we're calling Dr. Raglan. It's an interesting kind of approach that he's created where it's almost like the patient is hypnotized in a way or in a trance and he's talking to them as if he's a character from their life mm-hmm. and they're having this conversation it's a very interesting way to go about it and then yeah as you say this this rage this anger kind of comes forth in a physical manifestation it's 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 a really interesting aspect that i kind of feel works pretty well but i feel like they're are characters that are introduced at certain points in the film, like oh, uh, Robert Silverman, uh, who plays uh, Hartog. He's the one who's got kind of the thing on his throat, mm-hmm. who had been a patient and and now he's not. And and I think that kind of started confusing things a little bit for me because I'm like, I don't really know where we're going with this guy. But I think the stuff that Doctor Raglan is doing, I think, works better when it's just kind of in context of him doing his experiments. The whole act, uh, the the setup of how he handles his experiments, I think, is actually really done well because it, for me at least, because from that opening sequence, we we see not only the way his confrontational sort of uh, hip, hypno um, participant, participatory therapy works, uh, but also we we get a sense of the lair, right? The isolated estate high in the mountains that's doing kooky science again like kooky pseudoscience and now we've we've had that a number of movies maybe not necessarily in a row but his this is a recurrent theme uh for cronenberg and this time it's not plastic surgery it's it's not the uh uh you know the the virus shivers manifestation it's uh, you know we're playing directly with the brain like this is something he's still looking to um to explore what does this film's approach to the estate in the mountains doing kooky kooky pseudoscience do uh how does it it move that theme forward uh in in these early films for you do you notice anything different is it evolving for you Oh, well, I think it's improving, certainly, because I think if you're, I mean, Fast Company, as we've talked about last week, is largely an anomaly. But if you're just looking at Shivers and Rabid, there are definitely elements of that in both of those films. Mm -hmm. But I feel like finally he's hit a point where it's a little, uh, 
there it, it all feels a little more put together like everything about this this plan that he has feels a little uh I, it's hard to say realistic because you know the the way that he's drawing out these physical manifestations i think is pretty pretty off the wall but it feels more uh more thought out and it works better in context of the way that it's playing out in the story i really enjoyed this this kind of psychological dig into these characters that I, that worked and to that end i think he's taking this this you know big concept that a scientist has come up with to put forth and this is the first time where it really feels like okay things are congealing now cuz now we're and now it's it's coming through in a way that i feel it's hard to say it makes more sense because none of these really make <laughs> that much sense um but they are all i think the first two i think are just a little harder to kind of really piece together like okay uh plastic surgery to repair you know a damaged intestinal system and you know damaged armpit area that leads to this manifestation of a mouth in an armpit it's a little harder to believe um this feels like there's this interesting element of this psychosis and the study of it that that kind of comes through in a way that i i hate saying it makes more sense but in a way it does but you know i think we're wired to understand a movie like this better because i mean this is this is everything that carl jung based his his like entire sure, work yeah. on right is this idea of of kind of uh the the symbolic nature of of our subconscious and that's what's going on in this movie that is like the literal manifestation of of uh the the rage babies that are going on and and in in mike's case in the beginning the the you know cysts the like pustules that fade in and out of him as we cut back and forth those kinds of of elements are exploring something that we may not know um sort of explicitly in a in a way that we can talk about but we're wired to understand how how that works i think and that's one of the reasons that i think this the the uh, the whole thing uh the whole film works the other thing that the film does i think really well is the way it handles um our our uh, approach to grief and how these two people are grieving for for one another and how that that turns into rage and that really forwards the horror plot um but uh th the idea that in in the 70s we still have this this state where somebody is really grieving and we're going to sequester them and put them away right we're going to hide them away from the world because their their woe is not something that the world can understand and can relate to and so we hide them so we can better understand them and then the horror thing takes over and we can you know we can more relate to that um you know as the the fantastical but i i really like the way um they they approach the separation of these two characters and the grief that they're going through and how they each kind of deal with it i don't know i i really struggled with that because it felt so cultish that was the other thing about it that i'm like did she come here for a reason or was it because she was drawn here and now he's kind of manipulated her thinking uh, through these kind of sessions to to kind of create this situation for her? And that was something I, I did struggle with a little bit in my read of how, like, why was she there in the first place and how how manipulated is she being here? Yeah, I, I understand that. I, I can I can see that, too. For me, it immediately sort of harkened back to. Um, uh oh the, I, I saw a play 
I'm sure I've talked to you about it. It was about the invention of the vibrator uh, in the like late 1800s. And the entire conceit of the of the play was that it was this therapist who or this doctor who had invented this thing to um, cure the the uh, wandering womb hysteria that takes over women and how, and why they they are so um, freakishly unapproachable uh, at certain times and so delightful at others. And so uh, we, we better invent this tool. And so he invents this vibrator and discovers in his practice, so just in his office, in his house, like his wife is out here. She can't ever explore what's going on in his office, but these women come one after another for therapy. And it's, you know, therapy. And, uh, the, and all of this, like the subtext of this was that it, it was his treatment was preventing them from being put in a sanitarium, right? That that's what we did to women because we didn't understand them. And it's one of the things I actually find I really and I know that I am supplanting that on top of this movie. But what I love so much about it is and, and what I think Cronenberg actually does really sort of effortlessly here is he transforms this woman who has been put away because of the, you know, what what I read as her grief at the dissolution of their marriage and her sort of life falling apart. And they do something that is super arcane that she ends up falling prey to this sort of neo-cultist and becomes a queen mother, right? Like the, the final reveal of her when she says, look at me and, uh, and, and shows kind of what has gone on to her body and that it is this vessel of her, of, of her erupting rage, I think ends up being a super powerful moment in, in the film. Again, if you're, if you're putting all the weight that I'm putting on, on it, uh, I, I just, it, it read actually really well to me with all of that baggage. I I think that all of it's there, but I think you have to be on board to to find all of that. And that was one of the struggles that I ended up finding I had, because by the time we get to that place, when she has the big reveal, which is terrific, like that whole end bit is just creepy and perfectly Cronenbergian and and just fantastic in all the ways that it works really well. But leading up to it, I'm like, I've always had a sense from all from seeing all the sessions that she's had with Raglan that she's kind of this this manipulated, lost, broken woman that he's using for something. And we never knew what. By the time we get to that ending, she clearly is as much a part of it, I guess I could say, as he is. She's she now is aware of what's happening. She's giving birth to these things. She's she's become this this crazy mother creature that is like, you know, cleaning her newborns and, yeah. and prepping them for the world and stuff. And, and that's she's, not she's something... taken control from him. Like he even Ragland is out of control now. Like he he is no longer yeah. a part of of her process. Yeah, but it's just it's such a strange turn to have happened because there's no there's no sign that that's happening ever throughout the film. And then all of mm-hmm. a sudden here she is as this as this character. And so that was that was a struggle for me. But I but I do think it's a really interesting element that uh, the way that it plays out. I I think it's really um, yeah I think it's fascinating and even that great reveal when she pulls back the the 
the robe and you reveal that she's been erupting these these babies. It's the I, I had to look it up. The the parthenogenesis, parthenogenetic birth, uh, a, a natural form of asexual reproduction uh, in which growth and development of embryos occur without fertilization. Well, isn't that yet another incredible statement on what she has become that she no longer even needs a a, a man to fertilize her offspring, right? Like that is, she's, she has completely become, she's, she's transcended, she's evolved. And uh, all uh, in spite of what uh, this community and what her family had, had, you know, had in store for her. And I think that's a, that's a fascinating twist. Well, it definitely is an interesting twist. But like I said, I just, I struggle with the twist that all of a sudden here she is, who's fully aware of what's of all of this yeah. because up to this point she's seemed you know drugged up and in a stupor like <laughs> there's no sense right. that she's aware of anything that's happening at this institute it's the walter white twist right i mean she was a she's a victim and she became you know the one who knocks she becomes the antagonist uh yeah and, and, just uh, yeah it's just it's it's a yeah it's hard to buy into. All right. Well, I didn't have as much of a hard time with it. I, I thought it was actually quite uh, quite elegant. And I, you know, the the uh, little bow on top is that the uh, the scientist, the the mad scientist at the heart of the institution, actually eats it. Sort of, you know, I'm not going to say kind of directly at the hands of his discovery, but kind of directly at the hands of his discovery. Right at at this thing he was trying to relate to and trying to cultivate, he ended up being destroyed by it uh, as the rage babies pull them apart well and now that brings me to another question that i had what is raglan's goal because i mean the first two films we had a better sense at least of what the goal was you know whether it was like you know a worldwide sex orgy <laughs> which was yes uh one way to handle things or to to be able to do you know plastic surgery transplants that would actually you know the cells would actually take over what it was replacing and actually become that um here it's like okay he's doing this to help people uh but what like what is his plan like why does he keep going to uh to nola and having these sessions with her to create these rage babies like what is what's his plan with the rage babies like why why is he just keeping them up in the attic like i just i don't know what is happening with this? Well, with this I, I actually didn't I didn't get that sense that he was trying to cultivate the rage babies. I got the sense that he had discovered that this is something she was doing and he was trying to to understand it, to research it, to to um, sort of comes to terms with it. Because by the end, I mean, they build him up over the course of the first sort of two acts until he goes to the barn. Uh, they they build him up as, you know, this maniacal genius, you know, doctor. Frankenstein and uh, that that he's he's sort of pulling all the strings. But then they have this conversation, um, you know, the, the doctor and the husband have this conversation in which they 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 kind of say, you know, I got to tell you what's going on. They're going to kill you. Here's why we're this is why we keep them in this. We've, we've got to keep them here. He saw the window had been broken out. And I, I, my read on that scene, even though they didn't say anything, was that he was surprised or upset, somehow disquieted by the fact that that window was broken broken that they were getting out and um 
And and so all of that led me to believe that this was a massive ego in this doctor who thought he could do something great, that thought he could use his discovery and, and do something great, and it got out of hand and he lost control of it. That is what his arc to me uh, really speaks. So from the beginning, he's kind of a, he's, he's the, the loony sort of cult leader, but is his motivation ultimately uh, maniacal, ultimately negative? No, and well, and that's, and that's an interesting point because I think that the film plays with that, making him seem like he's the bad guy. And then you go, okay, maybe he's not the bad guy. It's, it's an interesting way that the film kind of shifts that perspective throughout to, mm-hmm. to reveal who's the real antagonist of the story here. Um, but at the same time, it's like there was a mysterious circumstance surrounding the murder of Nola's own mother that you know he didn't investigate the broken window at that time and then somebody else died it wasn't until the babysitter uh dies that he's like what the babysitter too (laughs) that he's like so yeah so there are elements i I, I see that it it just it makes me struggle a little bit with kind of what's going on with this film but it's interesting and i think that there's a lot of interesting stuff there i just i struggle with kind of that whole element of it lock up the the babies in the attic and um, hope that everything goes well by doing that. It seems like a strange yeah. plan. It does seem like strange. And because the babies seem to continue to like, he's not, it's not working. Like they're, they keep coming, they keep erupting. And that I think is a central problem in his plan. Like he's got to somehow stop the babies from popping off of this woman's body. That's not working. No, um, right. Yeah. And, if he, and, if his goal is to cure people of their, Anger. He's doing a really bad job. Yes, terrible job. Uh, <laughs> I, I do think it's great. At the end of the film, we do have once again the question. I wrote this down in my notes. Does the madness escape the compound? Right. We we had to address that in these the first two sort of horror movies. Right. Does the does the mad sex orgy virus escape the compound? Yes. Uh, does the did the rabid does does rabid survive or do they? peacefully resolve the world of zombies. Uh, and here, does the madness escape the compound? Yes, the the daughter has the rage baby pustules. Mm-hmm. It runs Andy in the family. Uh, totally saw that coming. Of course, it gets off the compound because now that's he's he's made it a pattern. He's made it a trope. Well, I uh, am just glad to know that anytime I've had hives pop up, uh, in my own personal life, that yeah. I wasn't angry at the time, so they didn't develop into something worse. I think what we've learned is that, like, we are all at great risk at any moment, yes, of any day. Never and be probably, angry when you have hives. Probably the answer is homeopathy <laughs> <laughs> and uh, essential oils. There it is. Uh, okay, uh, we, can we talk about kid on kid violence? This is something that uh, I. I Definitely have started noticing with his films as far as the violence in relation to the world of children. And I think, weirdly, Amazon, when we do our Amazon reviews at the end of the show, that's a place where I really notice that it bothers some people that Cronenberg features children in some particular cases. And in Shivers, it was that girl and mom in the elevator who are are taken by somebody who comes in. And I, there was a baby that was, uh, you know, we don't see it. It's kind of off screen. We just see the blood. But in Rabbit, that was definitely there. 
here, Cronenberg, uh, it's it's. An, I think the reason that violence with children works so well, and I think Stephen King has certainly uh, jumped on this too, is because it's not an area where we want violence to be associated, and so it makes it that much harder to deal with, uh, harder to watch, and uh, just it it amplifies the horror of what's actually happening when we see the uh, these these little kids the creature kids even though they're disfigured weird looking things they're young kid looking things and the first one that we really see is the one that's for whatever reason hiding up on top of the cabinets and jumps down and kills grandma it's 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 like this unnatural thing that happens and so i think they do an interesting job of not making them feel completely human until for me the scene where it really kind of took hold as a much more realistic thing is the classroom when that yeah yeah. When the, the teacher is killed in front of all of her students by two of these rage babies. I mean, it's just like, what? I mean, it was, it was pretty horrific. Well, it's horrific because not only like I can't I can't escape the meta experience of that scene, right? That I'm sitting there watching these the the rage babies in the snowsuits kill the teacher and in front of the class. And they filmed this in front of kids like it was a thing that that right. happened in front of kids at that age. And I can't I can't quite dissociate myself from that. That is a an enormously challenging thing to ask these kids to to act through and see uh, well, at that age. And Cindy Hines, who played uh, young Candy, um, mm-hmm. the the child, the, um, Frank and Nola's daughter, who they're trying to protect, or who the Rage Babies are trying to kidnap, basically, at this point. Um, she was in the classroom, and she said kids, like she and parents and everyone else, were trying to talk to these kids, saying, it's all just pretend. None of this is real. But she said that the the, the cries of horror and stuff that you hear in the film are the actual cries of horror of these kids who are seeing this happen, thinking that it was a real thing. It's just, it's kind of, it was done so just matter-of-factly that it's just, it's a horrifying thing to see. Yeah, and and that's the other the other piece of it. Matter of factly, like the robotic move of of the the creatures, yeah. uh, the way they move through the world, they they switch from you know these sort of hissing, screeching, kind of jumping monsters to the the robots just kind of wandering through space. Um, it makes them all that more sort of terrifying. I, yeah, I remember the first truly. time I read Lord of the Flies, the William Golding. Uh, book and and it was that same experience that I I feel like I I had to put it down as uh, watching as they're reading as the kids dissolved right culturally fall apart and and turn on one another and and uh, that was it, it's kind of the same experience and I feel like that's one of the one of the tropes like as you say it becomes a thing that is is uncomfortable we we don't like it and that makes it just perfect fertile ground for this kind of movie yeah definitely. The reason I had originally brought that up is because we also get, for me, you know, we had that perfect shot in Fast Company with the feet over the the um, uh, over the front windshield of the car from inside the yeah, car. And right. the, the, it was just a perfect shot, perfect, you know, series of frames. And in this one, for me, it's it's Cindy uh, with as the wall is is breaking up behind her and you see the hands start to come in over her shoulder and she just screams. And there it, it cuts back and forth, but there's one that is just straight on her. She's just slightly off uh, to the right of the frame. And I was, it was just jarring. It was a jarring presentation of her own horror in the attic at the end and um uh it's i I found it just 
perfect for me. It was the perfect shot for this movie. Well, that was a good terror moment too, because the way that those, um, you know, the the rage babies are like pounding on the door, where the whole door is just like shaking, and she's like yeah. just standing there in terror as they start ripping through the door and grabbing at her. It's just it really does amplify the terror really nicely. That whole that whole last scene with Raglan going into the attic to try to get candy from these rage babies was i think really done nicely and just in in the perfect horror way it just everything was tense and creepy and uh, it worked it was uh, for me it was that was a great counterpoint of the climax that was going on with nola and her husband downstairs it it really was that that's sort of the ticking clock and the pacing and you can feel when the doctor finds that things are not going well uh, between Nola uh, and Frank. And, and I just, uh, you know, the the look on his face as these kids, as he tries to get candy out and says, just run, find your dad. Uh, it's, it's straight up scary stuff. It was great. I, again, it makes me question Raglan and go, maybe you could have given Frank a little bit of information as to what's going on with Nola in there. <laughs> Well, yes. And you, yeah. And you know what else? Like, here's a, a thing, uh, Dr. Ragland. You said to Frank, I'm going to wait 30 seconds and then go in. And you know what you did? You didn't wait 30 seconds. He walked <laughs> away and you walked away. There was no waiting 30 seconds. That may have made or broken that entire sequence. 30 yeah, right. seconds. I also couldn't help but ke- I kept wondering, OK, his right hand man, Chris, played by uh, Nicholas Campbell, who we met in Fast Company last week. He's kind of the guy who's, you know, his second in command. And, uh, you know, it, he's he's Lobot here. And I mm-hmm. kept wondering, like, where is where is he at this point? Like, why isn't he here to be helping? Like, what happened to him? And I, it's, a, it's a minor point, but I, I couldn't figure that out. Well, I couldn't make sense of the geography of um, of the compound here. How close was this barn to the rest of the compound? It's it's set off. But I, that was the only because I had the same thought. Where is uh where's his buddy he's off decommissioning the the entire estate we know that they're they're pulling the plug on everything and moving all the residential people out but uh how close is it to what's going on in the barn like is it just a hop skip and a jump can they see each other we never really got a sense of the geography of this place so that we could have used a little more of that world building to really connect all that i think so yeah, uh, we've talked about a lot of the cast uh, of the the principal players of the cast. The only uh, two names I wanted to make sure we we drop here is specifically Felix Silla and uh, John Ferguson as two of the Rage Baby creatures. And uh, Felix Silla was uh, the the one that interested me the most because he has just more of a a, a um, career. I mean, the guy's got forty nine credits. He ended up. Uh, he was a Barnum and Bailey's uh, uh, circus performer. Ended up being a, a stunt person. Uh, he was in the Golden Childs. But he was an Ewok in uh, Return of the Jedi. He was in. He was Dink in Spaceballs. Uh, he was in Poltergeist. He's a stunt player. He's he's been in a lot of stuff that you have seen. And here he was in nineteen seventy nine, which was fascinatingly kind of. Toward the, uh, I'm not going to say the end, but the later part of his career. This was not one of his earlier films. He'd already been working since you know the early '60s uh, uh, on on television um, in such things as the Adams Family TV series as Cousin It, 
Isn't that fancy? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, He was also a Talosian Talosian in The Cage, the uh, premiere of Star Trek in 1966. And he was a child gorilla in Planet of the Apes. There you go. We have, in fact, seen uh, the uh, fantastic Felix Silla before. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was pretty cool. It it is very cool. Now, one thing I thought was interesting is that uh, for when it was just like one or two of these creatures, it was um, these uh, Felix and John Ferguson. My understanding is they're little people and you yes. know, playing kids. That makes sense. However, when we get into the attic and we needed a whole bunch of of these rage babies to kind of be there and to be attacking Raglan, they needed more, and so they they didn't have access to any of the little people up there and so they cast a a gymnastics troupe a young girls gymnastics troupe of girls who are i think they said they're in the kind of you know six or seven year old age range and they put these masks on them and they they had them all just kind of like jumping around and jumping off of things and grabbing onto oliver reed and he would kind of hold on to them but make it look like they were holding him as he kind of shook around and uh, but I guess a lot of them were kind of scared to do this, just jumping onto this big stranger. And so they had sheets everywhere and their parents were hiding behind them and everything just to make them all feel more comfortable, which I thought wow. was pretty funny. Is it? <laughs> 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 laughing. <laughs> uh, smiling. Uh, uh, camera. Mark Irwin uh, was behind yeah, the camera. Returning. Yeah, yeah. Returning to work with uh, with Cronenberg for the second time. He's uh, definitely kind of, you know, I think this is where you can see that he's tapping into the the genre elements that Cronenberg really works in. And I think that they do some interesting things here. They obviously are playing with it in some scenes to really amp up the horror as far as the way that they play with shadows and darkness. Also a scene that I thought was really interesting lit, interestingly lit was the scene when the first rage baby that uh, that Frank finds, it dies and he gets it autopsied. And the autopsy scene has this kind of really kind of odd purplish light that just seemed otherworldly. And it was really interesting to kind of look at it. And uh, just, I, I yeah, I think just in context of the cinematography, they came up with things like that that made it work in ways that I really hadn't seen before. All right. Howard Shore. That's the last one. It's a big name. Big name. Giant name on the music. Which and music? Th- this, is, this is really kind of uh, where it all kicks off for old Howie. I can call him that. <laughs> Good old Howie. Oh, Howie. Uh, yeah, Howard Shore. This is the start of a beautiful friendship between Howard Shore and uh, and David Cronenberg. They're going to work together on every film after this, except for one, which is, I believe, M. Butterfly, because of the nature of that particular project. But you know, this is uh, it's it's very early in his uh, in his career. And I think that he does a great job with the music here. I think it's it's creepy in all the right ways. I I, I just like what he's doing. I think that he is a great uh, composer, and uh, yeah, I I just I love the feel of of the the kind of the music, the environment that he creates, and how it envelops and aids 
what Cronenberg is doing. It really does. It's, it feels like sort of all-encompassing. Uh, I'm actually finding myself really looking forward to how his, his scoring evolves uh, over the coming few films. How, how it could lead from here to seven, you know, like charting a path uh, over the course of 20 years, 30 years, I think is really fun. So uh, it's neat to see where this one kicked us off. This was not his first, but pretty close. Pretty close, yeah. This, yeah. Uh, he did Drop Dead Dearest before this, um, or at least it was released before this. I don't know. Yeah. I know this This one was right up there as far as um, early in his career. But great work. I, and I just love that we get to talk about him now uh, with the rest of this yeah, series. Right. What a great excuse. So. Um, anybody else in Cronenberg's cronies that we need to, to mention? Well, we mentioned some last time. We should just uh, shout out again Carol Spear. Uh, this was her second time of 14 working with Cronenberg as the uh, production designer, art director. Delphine White, the costume designer. This is second of four times here. Um, and then for the audio guys, Brian Day is the second of eight films as the sound mixer. And uh, Terry Burke, the second of six films as the sound effects editor. On top of that, uh, I mentioned Nicholas Campbell earlier, who acts in this film, and um, I, and then Robert Silverman. Actually, he was in Rabid, and he will be in Scanners. He's the one who had the the thing on his throat in the last film, and then he pops up again in Naked Lunch and Existence. So I, I feel like I feel like we didn't close the loop on that particular thread because I think you and I agree that that entire story. That that entire sort of sea story was weird. It was weird. We meet him and he's got like roll on the floor therapy going on. Like I couldn't figure out ever what was happening with that guy. Yeah, it was an odd story element. Um, obviously, it sounded like he had been treated in the past, but I couldn't figure out did it result in the stuff on his throat? Was he trying to get the stuff on his throat healed? Like I don't know. It just never it never made sense. It never worked for me. Well, that was my understanding, and that he, uh, and that's why he connected with Mike, who was the guy with the pustules on his yeah. face and back, and that he was that this was something like the treatment gone wrong angle. It was the you know this was the activist sort of research angle, and it it just always felt sort of sidelined to me. Um, yeah. It was like one story too much, but I did like the effect. That was a very cool like flappy thing on his neck. I thought that was fun. Well, and that was a nice example of an effect done in a way where it's there, but you didn't have to feel like, you it's know, you lingered. Yeah, it, it's there, you know, it's under his neck. It's kind of under the cloth. you never get a good look at it. It's just creepy enough. So you go, ooh, something's there and I don't want yeah. to see it. Yeah. So that worked nicely. Uh, we've got sequels and remakes. Were there any? Well, believe it or not, Spyglass Entertainment was talking about remaking this back in uh, 2009, so 10 years ago now, uh, a script by Corey Goodman. I'm not familiar with Corey, but uh, and directed by Breck Eisner were, were the plans. The project uh, never came to fruition. Eisner left the project a year later, and that was it. Just kind of fizzled, which maybe for the best. I think people might realize this is a tricky one to try to remake. I think it might have worked better for them. At the time, you know, I mean, this was a film that is a kind of an obscure genre film that, you know, it was released in Canada. Here in the States, they released it through Roger Corman. And uh, it seems like maybe that was um, more the way for a project like this to go. Corey Goodman, uh, I, I think, speaking of his credentials, uh, written by screenplay story credits on Priest, 
2011, Apollo 18, 2011, The Last Witch Hunter, and Underworld Blood Wars, 2016. Those are the big four that he has for writing credits. Um, hmm. I don't know. I like this movie. It might be worth seeing a, a modern, a more modern stab at it. I'd see it. Well, it'd be interesting. After hearing his credits, I'm like, eh, I don't know if he would have been the guy to tell Don't even story. start with me on Underworld. I'll <laughs> I'll take you. We'll go to the mat on that. Hey, Rock, I, paper, scissors, I have already you told straight. you. I've already told you I think it would be a fun series to do. I don't know why you refuse to do that series. <laughs> anyway. Also, Breck Eisner, who is going to direct it, uh, directed the Crazies remake and everybody's favorite Matthew McConaughey vehicle, Sahara. Oh, no. I can't can't talk about that anymore. Please move on. (laughs) Can we we talk about, oh, dear, sequels and remakes? No, we've already done that. How about I had to do an award season? (laughs) The movie had one win, five other nominations. Over uh, the win it had, uh, it was at the Sitges, Catalonian International Film Festival, Horror Festival, where Cronenberg has been doing pretty well. And this is three for three of his horror films. He received the Prize of the International Critics Jury Special Mention as an award for this film. The other nominations that it received were at the Genie Awards, which are Canada's Oscars. Uh, This is a weird one. Robert A. Silverman, with all the stuff on his throat, he was nominated as the supporting actor for this. Um, lost to Gordon Pinsent at Klondike Fever. Um, and if it feels like perhaps Canada was reaching to nominate Silverman for his performance, just for comparison's sake, some of the other nominees uh, were Chris Makepeace and Harvey Atkin, both from Meatballs. So hmm. maybe the pot wasn't quite as as full. And they were just... <laughs> Yeah, you were in a movie. You got a nomination. You should, you should have it. Uh, the best performance by a foreign actress, Samantha Egger. Uh, she lost to Trish Van, Van Devere Vere in The Changeling. Uh, same thing for Carol Spear, best art direction set, to, uh, art direction production design. She lost also the, to The Changeling. Same thing with sound to Joe Grimaldi and Brian Day. And then Howard Shore, he was nominated but lost to the film Murder by Decree. Yet I have to say, uh, and this is really important, that Steve Zahn is at the top of his game in Sahara. How did, how did it do at the box office? Did you get anything out of that? I'm not sure why you thought bringing Sahara back up was a good idea. Andy. <laughs> Andy. Okay. That, that Clive Cussler, he writes page turners, man. And I think that series would have only gotten better. <laughs> <laughs> only they could have kept it going. Why no one's financing it, I don't know. Stop it. After, after you stop, gold. you stop talking because right. there's something's going to end up on the schedule. Cronenberg's <laughs> budgets just keep going up and up. For his second film of 1979, Cronenberg had a budget of just under 1.3 million, or about four and a half million in today's dollars. The movie was released May 31st, 1979, opposite Alien, a big one, the Peter Sellers comedy The Prisoner of Zenda, the Peter Fonda Brooke Shields western comedy Wanda Nevada, which I'd never heard of, and Phantasm, another uh, horror film. And considering it was a horror-filled weekend, it did pretty well for itself, raking in $5 million in North America. That is about $17.6 million in today's dollars, which gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of just under $150,000. You know that phantasm. Now that's a movie right there with the floating <laughs> death ball. It is an interesting one, yes. <laughs> Andy, God, I'm 
some fireworks over here. Movies I want to talk about now. What have you done to me? I don't uh, know. I, I think Clearly, uh, you got, this you was got things turning. Though. Oh yeah, uh, I I like this, and we're I liked talking about it. I know you had quibbles, and we'll see how uh, m- much the quibbles impact your rating as we uh, take it to the flick chart. Yes, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this show. And if you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it should take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your library and see how it stands up against ours. First up, The Brood or Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Well, that's not that's not a great matchup. <laughs> Where's the redo button? Flick chart. <laughs> I'm 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 honestly torn, uh, but I think I'm going to go with uh, Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, please. Yeah, me too. I'm a little torn myself. The Brood or Robin and the Seven Hoods? Definitely The Brood. The Brood, yeah. The Brood or Ocean's Twelve? Ocean's Twelve. I'll take Ocean's Easily. Twelve, please. The Brood or Lupin the Third, the Castle of Cagliostro? The Brood. I will take Lupin. Okay. <laughs> well, that was easy. Yeah, no, we're in that space. That's fine. Okay. I like okay. them both. That's good. The Brood or Compulsion. Definitely Compulsion. Compulsion, yes. The Brood or Atlantic City. I'm going to take The Brood here. Yeah, I will take The Brood. The Brood or The Sandlot. Sandlot. That's where all those kids came from. That's right. They were race babies. <laughs> You're killing me, Smalls, like a rage baby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Sandlot takes it there. The brood, or maybe that's where the dog came from. Maybe that was the rage baby. Oh, it was a dog rage baby. Dog rage baby, yes. Dog baby. (laughs) Rage puppy. Rage puppy. Oh. All right. The brood or the book of Eli? Uh, The book of Eli. I'll take the book of Eli. The Brood or The Host? The Host. I will take The Brood. You will not. Come on. I gave I you that other thing. I definitely take The Brood. No. No. Come on. I'm happy right. going to the mat on this one. All right. Here we go. <laughs> All right. One, one two, two, three. three rock. Paper. The Host takes it. All is right in the world. Well, The Brood landed at 310 on our chart. 310 out of 422, which That's is a few spots, a few spots above Rabbit and Shivers. So... That's too, there you uh, go. That's too low. You broke it. Something you did, something wrong. <laughs> how did you how did you do in your personal chart? My personal chart, uh, it ended up, it did, uh, let's see, this one was a what, a uh, 27%, not too much different on my own chart, 2898 out of 4213, which is a 31%. <laughs> okay, are you ready to have your mind blown? I, you ready? I am ready. Uh, this ended up out of 1411. This ended up at 220. What? Yeah. What? Okay. I know. And if I am to go by the algorithm over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a four star, a four star film my. Uh, on my own letterbox. That feels just a nudge too high. I'm going to give it three and a half. Considering and, the way you were like, talking, I feel like you were going to give it a four star. You do? Yeah. I was I was tempted, and then we had then you reminded me of that whole then you reminded me, and then I, I reminded you back about that whole <laughs> like C story that really that was that yeah, dropped it at yeah. a half a star. All right. Well, I'm at the same place. 
three and a half. I feel like you liked it more than I did, but yeah. I still think that of the films that I've liked of Cronenberg so far, that it's pretty, it, it's funny because I feel like I gave Rabbit a three and a half star and a like also, but I feel like I like this more, but I don't feel like it's a four star film. So I'm I'm in a weird place where now it's making me making me reevaluate my past rankings. Yeah, totally. I I am I'm there too. I I feel like this one is an anchor for me, and everything else should slot down, yeah. uh, except for Fast Company that landed right where it needs to be. <laughs> Ace in the hole. Uh, oh what we, where, dear! Where do we go from here? Well, we're just going to jump, be jumping to uh, forward a few years, looking at 1981 Scanners, which will be a fun one. A uh, Cronenberg film I had never seen, and so getting a chance to finally dip into that world, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, very exciting. Very exciting. Watch your brain. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon. There were some people who didn't like this movie. I don't know if you could tell. It happens. Mm -hmm. It happens. Down, deep, deep down in the one stars. Uh, I've got one from Jim who watched this movie on Prime Video in 2015. And he says, this was a true dumpster fire. Mm -hmm. We fell for it. The movie got lots of good reviews. Evidently, this movie got four stars. This is undoubtedly the worst thing to ever come out of Canada. Let's say that again. The worst thing to ever come out of Canada. The acting is B-movie at best. The plot is painfully slow and dopey. If you want to waste two hours of your life watching a late 70s semi-scary flick, then be my guest. But just remember, you will regret it. The monsters in this movie are these little dwarf asexual shrunken head freaks that look about as dangerous as E.T., and yet they're able to slaughter most of the hapless grown-ups in the movie by either crushing their skulls with toy hammers, glass orbs, or in one instance, by nibbling them to death. The climax of the movie is when the father goes to save his daughter from the little hellish freak children when he encounters his wife who's ensconced in some kind of tuffet and shrouded by a gown. The man is ready to, quote, get to know his wife again until she raises the shroud and he's greeted with an out-of-body uterine freak sack that is subsequently gnawed open by the mother. Out comes another little freak covered in blood with the mother begins to lick it off. With that, he strangles his wife to death, and the movie mercifully succumbs to its own wounds. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> nice work. Said everything we needed to hear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, num, 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 num. All right. I've got a one star by Altata, who, uh, who really didn't like this. And as for the title of the review, I'm going to save it for the very end uh, because it's too juicy. Okay. It's too dated and cheesy for me to get any enjoyment out of it. I often find that that's the case with movies made in the 70s. They're unwatchable tripe, and they succumb to the worst of 1970s mishmash of psychobabble and hippie pseudo-cultural liberalism. Terrible movie. Exorcist ripoff. <laughs> and then here's a great title. As for the movies of the 1970s, throw them all away! <laughs> 
Put a fork in it. <laughs> I I love this. I was looking at the comments on your review, and one of them says, uh, one of them who who goes under the username me, which really confused me, uh, said, Exorcist ripoff? I think you reviewed the wrong movie. And all tad up had to respond and say, no, I meant what I wrote about this movie. <laughs> That's the extent of this grueling line of inquiry. Mm. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.